of Genesis. Uh, I said we're continuing on through our study there. Um, we're coming near the end, and um, as we begin this morning, I want to start off by reading the chapter, and then we'll make our way back through. It says here in chapter 42, verse 1, it says, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with him, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And, verse 5, the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine, was, the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land, and he was, and, and, excuse me, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. That might be something that God foretold of, Remember? So, verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly with them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to the land to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's son, sons. We are honest men. I'm sure Joseph was like, Yeah, right. <laughs> your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies, and in this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh. Surely you are spies." So, verse 17, he put them all in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them, The third day, do this and live, for I fear God. And, you know, verse 18, verse 17, guys, is really a transitional verse. We see a shift there. So, we're going to put a little focus on that as we go through this today. But in verse 19, he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. So their, their necks are on the line here, and it says they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he had spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them, and he wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon 
from them and bound him before their eyes. Then, verse 25, Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of the sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. And then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is Lord over the land spoke roughly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of a father, and one is no more, and the youngest is with our father that this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man of the Lord of the country said to us, or then the, then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine for your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men, and I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw, these, saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more and you want to take Benjamin all these things are against me then Reuben spoke to his father saying kill my two sons if I do not bring back to you bring him back to you put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you but he said my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come, God, asking for wisdom. Lord, we believe your word to be um, truth. We believe, God, that you have spoke it and men had had written it and, um, Lord, you intend it to be a part of our lives today, to go into our hearts and into our minds, to grow us and to change us, to make us more um, like your son Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that your word would have that sanctifying process in us today, that we would see these things, Lord, for what they are as they lead us and guide us into um, a life that you have for us to live your ways, Lord, not our ways. Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning that's struggling with um, forgiveness, bitterness, or Lord, receiving just your grace as the free gift that what it is, that we would see from your word, Lord, how you've set us free. And with that same freedom and forgiveness that you've bestowed to us, you've called us, Lord, to give it to others so that we may ultimately be free. Father, we love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, as we begin to study through this next chapter, I want to point out that this really, this chapter is the beginning of the end. 
meaning it marks the final section of the book of Genesis. And even though the rest of the book is a continuation of the account of Joseph's life, the primary focus for us is now on this restoration or this reconciliation and restoration of Joseph's brothers um, to Joseph and also his father back to him as well. And through this process of restoration, God continues to fulfill these prophecies that have been given to Joseph um, uh, through the dreams that he had some 20 years prior when he was still living in his father's home in the land of Canaan. But in doing so, what we're seeing here is we're seeing God working for a greater good to save Joseph's family, right? That's pretty obvious from where we're reading here in the text. These chosen descendants of Abraham from this devastating family. But, but we also see God working to ensure his plan and promise to send through them a savior for all of mankind. And the cool thing about it is, is what we're going to see is we're going to see that this family of, of, of Jacob, these Israelites, if you will, these Hebrews, they're going to, they're going to go in to Egypt during this time. They're a, we know that historically they'll remain there for 400 years, and when God brings them out, God brings them out as a mighty nation. And, and, and we see this as a um, pivotal point in the history of the nation of Israel. So as we look at these events that are recorded here in chapter 42, we see, first of all, on a scale of, uh, of a timeline that we've been following in, in what we've been reading in the previous chapters, we see now that the seven years of plenty, followed by the seven years of famine, were all coming to pass, just like God had foretold of through the dreams that he had given to Pharaoh, which had been interpreted by Joseph. And because Joseph had um, also counseled with Pharaoh at the time that he had interpreted the dreams, he gave him counsel, if you remember, to store up one-fifth of the produce from all the land during the seven years of plenty. We see now that there was grain in Egypt during these years of famine. And because God was working his plans of good, through all these things, we see and we, we have seen how Joseph's life, once again now, is being turned upside down. And we know that Joseph went from being a prisoner in Pharaoh's prisons to a prince after he had um, given that advice to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh received that advice and he elevated Joseph to really the second in charge all over all of Egypt, and he pointed him as the governor, we read here, or as the overseer of this plan that would not only save the Egyptian people, but save many even beyond the borders of Egypt. And so as we look back to the beginning of this chapter, we're told that, that Jacob, who was in the land of Canaan with his sons, they saw that there was grain in the land of Egypt, and, and, and obviously this has been going on for a little while, and, and, and they're probably to the point what it looks like uh, from the words of Jacob to the point where um, their own reserves are gone. And so as a, as a father would, <laughs> speaking to his sons, he says, why, why do you look at one another? In other words, why aren't you doing anything about this? Because we begin to look at these events that are recorded here in this chapter, chapter 42, we see that um, at this point, the seven years of plenty have, have come to pass, and the seven years of famine had come upon the land. Furthermore, we see that the famine was so severe that it spe- spread well beyond the borders of Egypt. And if, um, and if we look back to chapter 41, 
specifically in verse 56, it tells us, it says this as it describes it. It says that the famine was over all the face, or the face was over all the face of the earth. And here in verses 1 and 2, we see that this includes the land of Hebron, or, or specifically Hebron in the land of Canaan where Joseph's fathers and brothers were living. And so Jacob, hearing about these grain reserves that had been stored up in Egypt, he sent his sons to go, to go and buy grain. And this is important that it says, so that they might live and not die. Now keep that in the back of your mind, because when we close this out and see how they return with the grain and the money that was in their bags, there's a connection to this phrase that I want to make when we get back to, uh, when we get to the end of our study. But so that that they went to go buy grain so that they might live and not die. Now I want to point out before we go any further and look at this process of reconciliation and restoration, which begins here for us in chapter 42 and really isn't complete until chapter 45 and some would even say maybe even into chapter 50 where where we see um, the death of of Jacob and, and Joseph's brothers coming together for that. But definitely... Um, we see a restoration taking place and this process of reconciliation for four chapters. And as we look at this and we begin to read some of these things, it might appear to us on the surface that Joseph was being cruel to his brothers. And even the word, we were even told that he had spoke harshly with them in, in this chapter. And, and, and some may even think and it may appear that he was wasting time by not revealing to them who he was by keeping his identity hidden and then going through this elaborate process, we're told, of testing him, of testing them. But guys, we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about this and we're looking at God's interaction through Joseph's life and the, and the major and the overall plan that, that, that God has and the plans of good, we need to keep in mind that true reconciliation, and if you're wondering how this applies to your own life and how, how restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation how we need to walk through it in the relationships that we have, we see a a biblical example for us here. Because true reconciliation, first of all, requires sincere repentance. True reconciliation requires sincere repentance. And, and, And that begins with the confession of sin. How we've harmed or wronged somebody if it's in regards to a relationship that we have with one another. And you know what the truth is? Often it takes time for a person to get to this place. Even for us, God has to lead us down that path of convicting of us of our sin and maybe even revealing to us how we've hurt or harmed someone and, 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 and then bringing us to that place where we're willing to repent, to confess our sin, and then be reconciled to those who we've been... Um, who we've injured or who we've been injured by. In light of this, I believe that Joseph wasn't wasting time at all or that he was playing any kinds of games. Rather, I believe that he was dealing with his brothers through this whole process in a really patient and loving, but also in a very wise way. And and it was the way in which Joseph was dealing with his brothers that created this opportunity for God to bring Joseph's brothers to the place where they would admit of the evil things that they had done to their brother and also to their father because they had lied to their father about what had opened to Joseph. And they deceived him and led their father to believe that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. 
And I point this out because if restoration had taken place without this kind of godly repentance, this process that we're reading about, then true reconciliation would have not been found for Joseph and his family. In fact, without confession of the sin, without repentance from the sin, the best that Joseph in this situation could have ever hoped for would have to have been having some kind of truce with his brothers. Almost like two foreigners dwelling in two foreign lands, right? Like they were. But this was not God's will. And furthermore, guys, it's not God's will for any one of us to settle for a truce in those times when we've sinned or in those times when we've done harm or when we've been sinned against or when, we're, when we've been harmed. God requires us. He expects us to seek and pursue that restoration and that reconciliation with those around us. And God would always have us forgive one another. He would have us seek true repentance and reconciliation with the same kind of patience, with the same kind of love, and with the same kind of wisdom that Joseph examples in, in dealing with his brothers. There's a roadmap for us. There's an example for us to follow. And, and, and when we do so, guys, we can trust that God is going to do his part because often we see it as an impossible thing. Because of the, the, the situation or the relationship and how it's been damaged or how it's been hurt. And we look at it and we go, it's not possible. But when we deal with things in God's way, when we're willing to, to, to be led by God like Joseph is being led by God, we can trust that God's doing his part, that he's going to do his part to not only work in our hearts, but in the hearts of those who we're seeking to be restored with, restored to, restored to just like God was obviously working in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. And um, as we look at this and we read about it with that lens, we then come back to this, this testing. And, and we see that, this, the, that the purpose for this time of testing um, that we read about in these, these next um, three chapters, um, or excuse me, really, the, the restoration, let me put it like this, the restoration that we see taking place um, is in conjunction with this time of testing. That's the reason for it. That's the purpose for it. And, and it, it, it begins here and continues on, like I said, through chapter 45. And it all took place, if you want to look at a timeline, if you go to chapter 45, verse 6, we see that it all took place within this first two years of the seven years of famine. So in response to this famine, and perhaps seeing that there was no signs of any kind of relief, Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob, we read here, he confronts his sons. And he asks them again in verse 1, why do you look at one another? In other words, he's really saying to them, why are you unwilling to go to Egypt and to try to purchase some grain? For he had heard, all of them had heard by this point, that there was, there was grain stored up in Egypt. Why would you sit here and starve to death when you could go and get us some food? Furthermore, the fact that Jacob accuses them of looking at one another implies that they weren't even willing to talk about going to Egypt, right? They're just sitting around looking at one another. They're not even suggesting it. And, and, and there's this great opposition, if you will, to, to even a consideration of it. And perhaps it was because they knew that in order to buy grain from Egypt that they'd have to embark on a, 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 a massive journey, 300 miles round trip, just to go there. Or maybe, maybe they were afraid that after arriving in Egypt, that they being foreigners from Canaan, a foreign land, that they wouldn't be given a friendly reception, that, that even maybe they would be arrested or enslaved. 
And, and maybe some of those fears were coming true as in their minds as they thought, as Joseph was accusing them of being spies. Or maybe, maybe it was their guilty conscience that was holding them back from doing what they needed to do. Maybe it was their guilty conscience and the memories of selling their innocent brother to traitors who were going down to Egypt that was holding them back. Nevertheless, what we see is their situation was bad, Right? And God was using this bad situation to do His work. They were going to starve if something wasn't done. So Jacob commanded his sons to go down to Egypt and to try to buy this grain for them. But once again, Jacob, according to verse 4, we see that this guy's rooted into his, his sinful ways, as just like lots of times we are. It says in verse 4 that he showed favoritism to one of his sons, Right? And rather than sending all 11 of his sons, he kept back Benjamin for fear that some calamity might befall him. And it's no surprise that Jacob did this considering Benjamin was like Joseph in that they were both sons who had been born to Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. She was dead now. Benjamin was that last living connection to this wife whom he loved more than any of the other of the wives that he had. But in addition to this, one has to wonder if Jacob was suspicious, don't you think? Maybe he was suspicious of what had really happened to Joseph. And even if he did not suspect any foul play from his, from his other ten sons in, in Joseph's disappearance, um, it, did this, it, didn't, it didn't dismiss the fact that Joseph had been with them when something had happened to him. And obviously Jacob was now in no way going to trust them on this long journey with, with Benjamin. So Benjamin remained in Canaan while all the others journeyed, we're told, to Egypt to buy the food. And if you look now in verse 6, it says that we're told that Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to him, and he spoke roughly to them and then he said to them where do you come from and they said from the land of canaan to buy food so joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him and then verse 9 is key it says then joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and he said to them you are spies and you have come to see the nakedness of the land now as the governor of egypt joseph was a very powerful man Egypt at this time was a, a, a mighty nation. And we study out historically, they had a great army. They were very wealthy. Um, they're very powerful. And so Joseph, just for that fact alone, is governor over the, um, the, the nation of Egypt. Second in charge, we're told, only uh, under Pharaoh. No one else was, uh, was uh, above him except for Pharaoh. And he was a very powerful man. And because of this famine, which had spread beyond the borders of Egypt, we've seen that Egypt's power, as well as Joseph's power, had increased. We see that God made it so that Joseph's powers reached beyond the borders of Egypt, as now many people were coming from far-off lands to buy this grain that Joseph had stored up. And I suspect that Joseph, who believed that God would do everything that he had said he would do, referring back to the dreams that Joseph had 20 years ago, I believe that because of that, Joseph anticipated that at some point, even his own family would come before him to buy grain. 
and in doing so, bow down like we read here of his brothers bowing down before him just like he had dreamed. I'm sure he was wise enough to see that God was using this and could use this potentially to, to fulfill the prophecy that had been given to him. So we read that upon his brother's arrival in verse 8 that Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. And not only had Joseph's looks changed, considering he now looked like an Egyptian, and he was shaved and he was wearing Egyptian clothes, but also we're told that he spoke like, like an Egyptian. And um, he, he was speaking in their language, and he was using an interpreter to speak to his brothers. In addition to that, we know that 20 years, 20 years had passed since Joseph's brothers had last seen him when they'd sold him into slavery at the age of 17. And during those 20 years that, that were full of all kinds of trials, all kinds of tribulations, Joseph had to have pondered during those 20 years what he was going to do when he finally met his brothers again. And I'm sure he struggled, just like we all would struggled with godly um, feelings and ungodly feelings and, and godly plans and ungodly plans, you know, just wait until I see them again, you know. Joseph was human, and, and, and he had these feelings, but, but he brought those into submission of God to God. Even here, he brings his feelings into the submission of God. We're told at one point he was speaking harshly with them, and then his demeanor changes, his words towards them change, and all of that changes when he remembers, we're told, the dreams of God. And even though Joseph had been given this great position of power, that really would have enabled him at this point to punish his brothers, um, to torture them, and to, to even put them to death, because he was speaking rightly that if they didn't at this point do as he said, that you know their heads were on the line. Um, and even Joseph, even though Joseph had this great power, and think about that, and, and this power really would have enabled Joseph to give his brothers what they deserved, right? And at the same time, it could have given Joseph, this power could have given Joseph the opportunity to seek his revenge. But even though all of those things were possible for Joseph, as God really in one sense put his brothers right into his hands, we see that Joseph didn't abuse the power that God had given him. Did he? Joseph didn't abuse the power that God had given him, nor did he use it for his own personal gain. Rather, when Joseph recognized that these ten foreigners were his brothers, he remembered the dreams that God had given him. And in doing so, we see that Joseph sought God. And he chose to do the godly thing. So rather than punish his brothers, Joseph tested them, we're told. And he sought to bring them to this place where they would repent for what they had done. He didn't want to condemn them. He wanted them to repent for what they had done. And he did so by first challenging their motives. Do you see this? He challenged their motives. Did they really come for the grain or were they spies who had come to survey the land in order to find its weakness? And we think, well, why would he, why would he be thinking that? Remember, these same brothers had a history, not just with Joseph. They had a history and we've been studying through the book of Genesis. We've seen some of that. Remember, these same ten brothers, they'd already taken advantage of a whole city of people by making a treaty with the men of that city, a city of Shechem. 
And after the men of the city of Shechem had agreed to be circumcised as part of that, 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 that agreement, a part of that treaty, we know that Joseph's brothers, these brothers, attacked that city three days later. It says, when the men were in pain and could not fight, and what did they do? They killed them all. And then they plundered the city, taking all of the, the, the things that were of value in all of the women of the city. These guys were brutal. They were deceivers. And Joseph, who had also been betrayed by these ten men, knew what they had done and knew what they were capable of doing. Consequently, they could not be, be trusted. And, and, and Joseph, who was now responsible for the care and in one sense the protection of Egypt, he had a right to challenge their motives. In fact, these verse, in these verses we see that as Joseph spoke harshly with them, he questioned their, their intentions four different times and accused them of being in Egypt under a false pretense. And Joseph did not relent. Even when they, in verse 11, declared that they were honest men. And he did not relent until this, though. Until they spoke a truth in verse 13. Did you notice that? That everything kind of shifts there on that verse, and even more so as we go on. But in verse 13, they spoke a truth, saying that in total there were 12 brothers of one man. And how Benjamin, their 12th brother, was still at home, and how that their 11th brother, who was unnamed by them, was no more. And of course, they were referring to Joseph, who they didn't know was the man that was before them. And I'm sure that this truth, think about it, put yourself in that situation. I'm sure this truth, alongside the fact that his brother, Benjamin, and his father, Jacob, was still alive, because that's the news he was receiving all in this one statement, that it had to have filled Joseph with many emotions. As a matter of fact, a little later on, we read that Joseph is so overwhelmed that he has to leave. He starts weeping. It had to have been a really hard thing to do, a hard place to be. And so, jo- but, so, so because Joseph, ultimately we see he had no real desire for his brothers to suffer or for them to be punished, but that they would repent and be restored to each other. We see in verse 15, it says that, that Joseph sought to test them to see if they were willing if they were really telling the truth or, or if they had really changed. Were they really now honest men? Do we do that? Do we give people the benefit of the doubt? Those from our past? Or do we go, I know you. I know what you're like. I remember what you did. And we allow them no door, no avenue into our lives. When perhaps they have changed. Perhaps they had come to make things right if they were given the opportunity. Now, I want to point out that Joseph's heart, guys, is the same heart of Jesus. Jesus, Joseph has here the same heart that Jesus has. And when Jesus had spoke to his disciples in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4, the heart of Jesus is revealed, but also the heart that Jesus desires or requires us to have is instructed, commanded. And in verse 3, Jesus said this. He said, take heed to yourselves. And, and that's important because when we're talking about these kinds of things, often we're, we're wanting to take heed to someone else, someone else's self. Hey, that's good advice for you. 
As a matter of fact, you've done, you should do this. But it says this, it says, If your brother sins against you, Jesus said, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, Jesus said, you shall forgive him. And we know that even long before Joseph had this encounters with his brothers, we know that even before this time, Joseph had forgiven his brothers. How do we know that? Because if we go forward, fast forward to chapter 50, that at the end of this, this account, when, when, when Joseph is sent a message with his father's last dying words, which were to forgive his brothers, Joseph expressed how he had already forgiven them but because Joseph understood that, that he was able to do that, that he, Joseph was able to already have forgiven them because he understood that God had been in control. That's what Joseph said. I'm able to forgive you, and I, I had forgiven you, is what he says to his brothers, who comes with this, these last words of his father as he had died. He said, because I know that God had been in control and that God was bringing good from the evil things that his brothers had intended against him or brought against him and he explained to them that as a result of this that he held nothing against them for what he had done but we see that before these brothers could receive this forgiveness that joseph had already worked through at this point before these brothers of his could receive this forgiveness that had already filled Joseph's heart, they had to come to the place where they would confess the wrong that they did and ask for the forgiveness. In light of this, we're once again, we're again reminded of the, of the fact that none of us has any right, guys. None of us has any right to hold on to unforgiveness. None of us has any kind of right to hang on to any kind of hurt that has been done against us rather we must be willing to forgive and 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 willing to forgive we must be ready to give that forgiveness when confession and repentance takes place and maybe that's a place where you're at now maybe you're like i i I don't want to forgive because that means that i automatically got to be restored to this person and, that, and that's not what we're taught in the Word of God. We're called to be in that place where our hearts are forgiving. And then when someone comes saying, you know what, listen, I, I, I did this. I know I did this. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I want to be restored to you. That's the, that's the mindset that goes along with that. We're already in that place where it's forgiven. And we go, yes, good, it's done. And we all know that this can be a really, really difficult thing to do. And I know that there are things that have been done against you that are are horrific. Some of you guys have had some evil things brought against you by other people. But God says that you should forgive, that we should forgive, that we should let those things go and wait for that time when that person comes to be restored, to, to confess what they've done, to make it right. And and even though this is a very, very difficult thing to do, we must remember this. We must remember that God commands us to do it. It's a command of God. And he says, even if they do it seven times in one day, 
and ask for forgiveness, you should forgive them. And, and, and God, in His command to us, in anything that God commands us to do, He always makes a way for us to do it as well. He doesn't ever ask us to do anything without making the way for it to be done. And that's very important to do. You know, it's, 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 and so as God commands us to do these things, He makes it possible for us to do it by this by first reminding us of not only how much of we have been forgiven freely by Him, right? But also, God makes it possible for us to do this thing that's very difficult by this account that we're reading. By also through these words of Joseph that reminds us of how God's plans for our lives. Listen to this. God makes it possible for us to be able to do this hard thing when we've been sinned against by reminding us of how His plans for our lives and how His workings of good for us are not limited by any person's plans of evil that might come against us. And sometimes that's what we think. You've done this thing to me and you've ruined my life. You've robbed me of this thing. And what we see with Joseph and what God is telling us is is those things, those hurts, those sins cannot stop God's plans and God's will of good for our lives. In fact, this truth is further revealed when we consider Joseph remembering at this moment the dreams about his brothers bowing down before him, which was coming to pass at this very time. And in light of this, we see that their resistance to God's plan by selling Joseph into slavery had come to pass in Joseph's life, just like God said, in spite of all their wicked efforts, in spite of their sins against their brother. But as we consider how Joseph's brothers were made to bow their knee and how God's plans could not be obstructed by them, Really, guys, we see another connection here through this. We see another connection to what we're taught about Jesus in regards to God's plan of salvation force for the nation of Israel, but also for the rest of mankind who chooses to reject Jesus as their Savior. And specifically, first, guys, with the nation of Israel, we know how they refused, the Bible tells us, to submit to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. How they refused to bow their knee and accept Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one sent by God, the prophesied Son of God who was sent to save them. And, and, and we know that in, in, in resisting the, the, the bowing of their knee in, 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 in preventing themselves from submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what they do? They crucified Him. They had Him crucified. Yet the Bible, which foretold of even that, prophetically tells us that there will come a day when the nation of Israel, who, who crucified Jesus in an attempt 2,000 years ago, an attempt to avoid bowing down to Him, that they will eventually bow their their knee to Jesus and declare Jesus to be the Holy One of Israel. And this prophecy came through the prophet Isaiah who foretold of this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. And it says this, and it says, Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate, prostrate 
prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And the same thing will be true, the Bible tells us, for all of mankind, even every Gentile, all of those who at this very moment are resisting the love and the forgiveness of God as they, as they despise Jesus by the words they speak and the, and, the, and the lives they live, as they refuse to bow their hearts to Him, as they refuse to confess Jesus to be their Lord. But in the end, in the end, Philippians 2 verse 10 tells us this tells us that God's plan cannot be forded. It tells us that every knee will bow to the name of Jesus and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. As we read on now, and you look at verse 18 with me there, it says, well, so let's look at verse 17. It says, so he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. And then what we read is, is there's kind of a change in the plan. And even though Joseph had put all of his brothers back in prison, or put all of his brothers in prison with this intention, his original plan, right, was to, to, to put all of them in there and only release one to go back to Canaan, to Hebron, and to bring back Benjamin as a test to see if these guys were now telling the truth. And we see that after three days, Joseph's plan changed. And it appears that his plans changed, or that this, it appears that this change was the result of Joseph seeking God, or at least God speaking to Joseph during these three days in order that Joseph might find out what he should do. And this is evident to us because of verse 18, where Joseph then comes to his brothers and he speaks to him and he says this, simply he says, do this and live for I fear God. And by making the statement, let me tell you something, by making the statement, Joseph was doing more than just proclaiming to them his reverence of God. Hey, I know you guys are a worshiper of um, Elohim. Um, and, and I am too. I fear God. I, I respect God. That's not what Joseph was doing here by that statement. Rather, what Joseph was doing is he was telling his brothers that, hey, listen, I know I told you this, that I'm going to lock you all up. I'm going to send one of you back. But he's coming to them and telling them that his plans had changed. We're going to do something different now because God had told him what to do and he was going to do what God had said rather than do what he had originally planned. Why? Because he feared God. Why? Because God's plan was the one that would bring forth life. So if they would do what God said, then, then they would live. Do this and live, for I fear God. Do this. Don't do what I said. Do this. This is what God said. And if you do it, you're going to live. There's life. And because Joseph acknowledged God and decided to do things his way, we read, very first thing we read here in verse 21 is that his brothers, and this seems kind of like, how did, how did this happen as a result of what Joseph did? And we read in verse 21 that his brothers were moved. In their heart, they were moved because they acknowledged their guilt for the sins that they had committed against Joseph 20 years ago when they sold him into slavery. Remember, they still don't know that they're dealing with Joseph. There's something supernatural going on here. There's life taking place as a result of God's plan. 
And, and what God was asking Joseph to do didn't make much earthly sense. Why does he need to send back all nine? I'll just send back one. Same test. Good enough. And then if they don't come back, that one doesn't come back, then I can take care of these nine scoundrels. Right? Isn't that how you and I would think? But God had a plan. And it's obvious that God was using His plan from verse 21, what we see here, it's obvious that God was using his plan to confront Joseph's brothers of their past sin and to lead them to this place where they would repent. And this is just one of the ways, guys, that God's ways, which leads to life, are different than man's ways, which leads to death. For our ways, guys, has no power to change a person's heart. Our ideas, our wisdoms, our way of doing things cannot penetrate into a person's heart. It's one of the reasons why here we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book upon book, line upon line, precept upon precept, because my thoughts, my ideas, my opinions don't have the ability to penetrate into our hearts and change us. God's Word is the only thing that does. It's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And Joseph proclaims this. He says it's God's plan, it's God's words, it's God's way that can do this. And we see that immediately taking place by their response in, in, in 21. And really, guys, what we read here in these verses, in this story, is an example of godly conviction versus condemnation. And, and see, our plans, apart from God's plans, are plans of condemnation make you pay for what you did and condemnation really drives a person away from god Satan is the condemner bible tells us that even our own heart condemns us at times when our sin is brought before our eyes and when we're living under that condemnation when even when our own heart attacks us it draws us away from god but yet when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of sin and unrighteousness, that conviction, which is opposite of condemnation, draws us to God. It softens our hearts. It causes us to lead us to this place where we repent and where there's, where there's restoration. And so what we see here is, is there's an example for us of godly conviction versus condemnation. In other words, Joseph, guys, he could have, if he had kept to his plan, he could have kept his brothers locked up. He could have taken this opportunity to confront them of their past sins. I don't know about you, if I was Joseph, I might have gone down to them prison cells while that one guy was gone and like, so let's talk about something. As they were on the other side of the bars and I had the power and not to say that Joseph was like that, but he could have seized that opportunity with his plan to do these things. And he could have even punished them for what they had done. He had the power to do it. And even though Joseph would have had justice, right? Even though Joseph would have had justice, something that we also often want when we're in these situations it's clear that if he had done these things, his brothers would not have been convicted in their hearts and there would have been no repentance and no restoration. Guys, the point is, condemnation is different than godly conviction. Condemnation is much different than godly conviction. And even though God disciplines, the Bible tells us, those whom he loves in order to lead us to the place of repentance, the fact of the matter is, us giving a person what they deserve is not always the best. And we're reminded of this when we consider 
the nature of God, the person of God, the dealings of God, in that God is long-suffering. And it's His goodness and His mercy and His kindness, the Bible says, that leads us to the place of repentance. And this was God's desire, and it was God's plans for Joseph's brothers. And Joseph was moving down this path by doing things God's way and not doing things his way. And this is further, this further is revealed by what Joseph did at the end of this chapter. When he then sent the nine brothers back to Jacob with their father, and he did so according to verse 25, it says that he gave them this, this command to those who were given them the grain to fill their sacks with grain and then restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provision for the journey. And thus he did for him. Now again, in a worldly sense, that makes no, that makes no sense. And, and these guys realized it when they discovered it. Why is our money in our bag? And one might think that Joseph was setting them up. But Joseph, when you read later on, Joseph doesn't even make an issue of it. And that's because this is part of God's plan. This is part of what God had spoken to Joseph and told him to do. And once again, we read here in verse 28 of Joseph's brothers. If you look down a little bit, the response to this is Joseph's brothers through this acknowledge God's hand of correction or discipline upon them. And from their point of view, the fact that their money had been returned to them, from their point of view, it put them in even a greater dilemma for if and if or and when they were to go back, then they, they believed they'd have to try to explain how they ended up with their money or that they would be accused of stealing it or whatever, right? And, and really, there was no explanation for it. Joseph said, we have your money. He'll say that. I don't know what was in your bag. But yet Joseph commanded it. Why? Because God had said it. And when we look at this as part of God's plan, guys, we see a wonderful picture. Think about it. When we look at this as part of God's plan, we see a wonderful picture of this, of God's grace. It's a picture of God's grace. And it's a picture of the salvation by grace through faith that we've received through Jesus Christ. In that, like Jacob's sons had traveled all this way, a great distance to try and buy this grain so that they might live, we see that they were unable to do so. They couldn't buy it. God would not allow it. Considering the money they, was used, they, they used was returned back to them. In other words, they got the grain that would save their lives for free. They got the grain that would save their lives for free. And I'm here to tell you that's the same thing for us. It's, it's, that is the case for us in regards to the salvation that we have received that has saved our lives. Scripture tells us that salvation cannot be purchased. All we have to do is come with our broken hearts and our empty hands and receive what Jesus has already purchased for us. The prophet Isaiah prophesied this of this salvation that was come through the Messiah. And he said this in Isaiah 55, verse 1. He said, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine, milk, without money and without cost. Justin, we don't... We will do prayer next week. We don't have time now. I'm blaming it on Curtis for all of his talk about a missions trip. But Justin, and if you guys want to come up, and we're just going to close with one last song. Guys, in light of this, in light of all of this, 
this, please get this if you get nothing else, because we can lose sight of this even, even as Christians. Even as, if you've been walking with the Lord for 20 years, 30 years, two minutes, this, this is so important that you hear this today, and that we, we, not, we may know this, but it needs to just take root in our hearts. We need to understand that grace is not the starting point of our salvation. It's the only point. Grace is not the starting point of our salvation. It's the only point. It's all about grace. You are saved by grace. You are sustained by grace. And when you die and leave these earthly bodies behind, it's going to be about God's grace. It's like you're going to get to heaven and you're going to have that bag of grain and, and your money's going to be in the bag. You've done nothing. And clearly God's grace is amazing. And God's grace is more than enough. But if we try to explain why grace has come to us, then we will, we will, we will be trying to explain grace away. Because grace is the unexplainable free gift of God. Did Joseph's brothers deserve what they got? No. Have we deserved what we have got? No. And so too should we not look to give others what they deserve when we've been sinned or harmed against by them. May we be ministers of God's grace. May we be extensions of God's grace. May God's grace flow through our lives as we are long-suffering, as we are loving, as we are patient, as we are wise in dealing with those people around us and even with one another in this own church. Father, thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you, God, that you tell us to come and buy even though we're poor and naked and, and have nothing in of ourselves. But God, that, that, that call that you've given to us that convicts our hearts of sin, that gives us hope of eternal life and forgiveness of our own sins. Lord, may we see this morning that your grace is more than enough. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning, God, who has yet to give their life to you because they've, they've, they feel like um, they're unworthy, I pray, God, that, they, that those feelings and thoughts would be affirmed and confirmed and to show them that even though they're unworthy, that, that you still have chosen them, that you still died for them, that you still forgive them, and that you find them worthy, Lord, when they come to you in faith and receive this free gift of, of grace and forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, we all know our wretchedness. We all know that we are sinners. And I pray, God, that you would continue to convict us of our sins, that you would continue to discipline us and lead us, Lord, into that path, um, that right path, that path of righteousness. Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us and make us more like you, that you would help us see that grace is the only point. Father, we love you and we praise you and we worship you, Lord, with this last song in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand and we'll sing the last song of worship together?